may not have heard before the Old Testament lesson that we just had, and this may not be surprising, as it's generally left out of the lectionaries of the church. You might ask why. Well, its story of gang rape leading to death and mutilation is hardly the most edifying that the Bible has to offer. Characterised by one Old Testament scholar as a text of terror, it seems that life would be much more comfortable if such stories were quietly forgotten. The reason I rake it up, however, is because it neatly fits the bill of accusations thrown at the Old Testament by the new atheists, notably Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. In his book, God is Not Great, Hitchens characterises the Old Testament as a nightmare, full of horrors, cruelties and madnesses. He has a problem with the random selection by God of, quote, unlettered and quasi-historical individuals to whom different and contradictory revelations were given at different times, thus leading to religious wars over the legitimacy of one or other. He writes, we ought to be glad that none of the religious myths has any truth to it or in it. The Bible may, indeed does, contain a warrant for trafficking in humans, for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for for bride price and for indiscriminate massacre, but we are not bound by any of it because it was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals none of the gruesome, disordered events it describes ever took place. Hitchens focuses in his chapter on Exodus and the Ten Commandments. He regards the Ten Commandments as undoubtedly man-made, and he sees all the events of the Exodus wandering as made up at a much later date. He dwells much on the paucity of archaeological evidence, despite Jewish and Christian efforts, And he writes in his cynical and amusing style that in the 19th and early 20th centuries, such was Christian zeal to uncover evidence that, quote, you could hardly throw away an orange peel in the Holy Land without hitting a fervent excavator. He also attacks the idea that Moses himself wrote the Pentateuch, although he seems unaware that this idea went out of fashion in biblical scholarship also in the 19th century. He doesn't mention Judges 19, the passage we had tonight, specifically, although no doubt he would have had a field day with it. But he condemns the whole Old Testament when he writes, one could go through book by book, always encountering the same difficulties. People attain impossible ages and yet conceive children. Mediocre individuals engage in single combat or one-on-one argument with God or his emissaries raising afresh the whole question of divine omnipotence or even divine common sense, and the ground is soaked forever with the blood of the innocent, quote-unquote. So I think you begin to get the picture of where he's coming from. Richard Dawkins makes a slightly more subtle attack from a more moral angle. He won the Galaxy British Book Award in 2007 for his book The God Delusion, Now, there are not many theology books on sale in Tesco's, but this was one of them. And on a bright summer's day, as I was wheeling my trolley down one of the aisles, the book caught my eye 
and I bought it. When I got home, I sat in the garden in a deck chair and started to read. My husband claims that he could see smoke rising from the chair as I fumed over its contents. This story may have apocryphal elements. Dawkins believes much of the Old Testament has apocryphal elements. But I was certainly incensed, not so much just by the book's atheistic evangelicalism, but by its clear oversimplification and downright inaccuracy. Dawkins doesn't devote a whole chapter to the Old Testament, but he puts it in the context of how scripture might be a source of morals or rules for living, either in terms of laws such as the Ten Commandments or role models that devotees might follow. Either route he terms obnoxious to any civilised modern person, particularly in the light of the fact that the Bible is, quote, not systematically evil, but just plain weird. But, he says, unfortunately it is this same weird volume that religious zealots hold up to us as the inerrant source of our morals and rules for living. I think this word zealots is very telling, as Dawkins gives the impression that all religious people of any persuasion are extremists who take the Bible literally and reject all scientific explanations for natural disasters that occur, in the belief that they are payback for human misdemeanours. He comments on the human egocentricity that places human concerns at the centre. He asks, why should a divine being with creation and eternity on his mind care a fig for petty human malefactions? We humans give ourselves such airs even aggrandizing our pokey little sins to the level of cosmic significance. Dawkins does offer some comment on the Judges 19 story. He notes its similarity to the story of Lot in Genesis 19, so suggesting a certain borrowing, an example of what he calls the erratic provenance of ancient texts. Let me read out his summary of the story, which is as good as any, for, as I said, no one's covering up the fact that this is a difficult, gruesome and somewhat unedifying piece of literature. An unnamed Levite priest was travelling with his concubine in Gibeah. They spent the night in the house of a hospitable old man. While they were eating their supper, the men of the city came and beat on the door, demanding that the old man should hand over his male guest, quote, so that we may know him. This may be a thinly disguised attempt at homosexual gang rape, but Dawkins actually doesn't air this particular possibility. This access is denied by the old man, since the other man is is his guest. Instead, he offers his own daughter and the other man's concubine with the words, Humble ye them, and do with them what seemeth good unto you. But unto this man do not so vile a thing. Dawkins pauses to point out the clear misogyny here, although it may be that by sending out the woman, the old man was hoping to get rid of unwanted male-to-male attention. So anyway, the Levite handed her over to the mob who gang-raped his prostitute all night. When she lay prostrate on the doorstep next morning, he abruptly told her that they must get going, but she didn't get up because she was in fact dead. Then comes the gruesome bit that he chopped up her body into 12 pieces and sent pieces of her body to different Israelite tribes. Dawkins writes, Yes, you read correctly. Look it up in Judges 19.29. 
Let's charitably put it down to the ubiquitous weirdness of the Bible. Dawkins' main point in his chapter here is to say not that we shouldn't get our morals from Scripture, but that in fact when we study Scripture closely, we find that we don't. We certainly don't treat women of any type in this way, nor do we perform bloodthirsty acts like this without being sent to jail. I agree with him that we don't tend to cite this particular story or others like it as role models. They are individually, culturally conditioned stories about particular characters after all. But are we right to align these with the Ten Commandments or other more edifying laws or narratives? So where do we go from here? I could try to resurrect the judge's story just a little. One could talk, to talk about the strict rules on hospitality at the time that meant that once a person found refuge in another's home, their security was paramount. One could mention the lowly status in their society of prostitutes and concubines, even though concubines often acted as second more fertile wives. One could, as many have done, see the story as largely symbolic, the twelve pieces of the concubine's body representing the twelve tribes of Israel, scattered and in chaos, a prelude to a fresh era of united kingship in Israel that would calm erratic and violent behaviour such as is shown by the men of the town. One could also point out that even by the standards of the culture of the day, this was unusual (coughs) behaviour. Hence the story was related as noteworthy. But these answers may seem like special pleading. Of course, ancient Israel is a culture strange in many ways to our own. But are we simply to dismiss it as the writings of uncultured primitives as Hitchens does? Is Dawkins right that this is a moral desert and that the good book as a whole gives us no nourishment whatsoever? Well, Christians often solve the problem by turning to the New Testament, and some even become almost Marcionite in their rejection of the Old. Our New Testament passage has the boy Jesus citing the Old Testament, which reminds us that actually this was his Bible that he believed to be authoritative and inspirational. And he cites one of the nice bits, Isaiah. Christians have traditionally trumpeted Isaiah in all three parts as a great prophet who predicted much that was to be fulfilled in the figure of Jesus and in the pages of the New Testament. So Jesus reads out, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Here is the gospel we're more familiar with, the gospel to the poor, one of healing and deliverance, liberty and divine obedience. But this is the Old Testament. Maybe then it's not such a lost cause after all. There are undoubtedly fine, moving, well-written, and dare I say it, both culturally profound and morally acceptable passages in the Old Testament. The problem is that one has to pick and choose. That is what the Christian lectionary is doing when it leaves a few unsavoury stories out. And can we really blame those who put the lectionary together for doing that? 
So to turn to the other side of the nightmare coin, and that is inspiration. Can we find inspiration in this weird collection of texts from different periods, cultures and opinions? Can we in turn retrieve Christians from the accusations of extremism and moral turpitude? The danger of these kinds of criticisms is that they're sweeping and general, lacking real depth and knowledge, and primarily agenda-driven. With its 39 books of many genres, from law to prophecy, from narrative to wisdom, from writings to great eschatological visions, the Old Testament is undoubtedly a work of great range and vision. It contains many conceptions of God within its pages, conceptions that changed and developed over time. There is initially a rather limited revelation to a small chosen group whose perspective on God is of a warrior who wins their wars for them and grants them land and sustenance, and yet this picture opens out and develops into one of a loving and universal God who redeems not only his own people but the whole world. We find profound expressions of a just and loving God, creator and redeemer, who creates and sustains the world through his enduring grace. But before I get carried away with the Old Testament's theological richness, I want to end with the thought that life is full of opposites. Life and death, good and evil, righteous and wicked, rich and poor, religious and non, worthwhile and not. I could go on. In a fascinating book addressing the problematic passages in the Old Testament, entitled God Behaving Badly, David Lamb points out that for every difficult passage, there is a corresponding good bit. Just like us, God is made up of good and bad points. He asks the question, is the God of the Old Testament angry, sexist and racist? And his answer is, actually, yes, some of the time. Although God is usually only angry at injustice practised on his people, God can be sexist, but he does give women sometimes quite a prominent place. And although he does favour the nation Israel, he also encourages his people to be hospitable to foreigners and strangers, even if Judges 19 takes that a little bit far. Far from being a mean God, to be contrasted with the loving God of the New Testament, there are large elements of that loving God in the Old Testament. It's just harder to winkle out at times. The great story of Israel, its kings, sages, prophets, priests and lawgivers, is, I would argue, a good and inspirational read. Its rich tapestry can provide, as at least Old Testament scholars know, endless inspiration and also difficult challenges. But isn't life more fun with a few challenges in it?